Good morning, everyone. Do take a seat. Such a, a pleasure and a privilege to uh, be speaking with you this morning. My name's Johnny, and I'm, I'm one of the members of the church here. And we're carrying on in our series in 1 John uh, chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 7 through to chapter 5, verse 3 this morning. Before we read the passage together, though, um, by way of an introduction, um, I want to uh, think back to an event that happened just a couple of weeks ago. So on the 23rd of August, 2015, nine athletes lined up for the highlight of the World Championships, the 100-meter final. But the spotlight was fixed firmly on just two of the nine athletes. In lane five, the people's hero, Usain Bolt. And in lane seven, the pantomime villain, Justin Gatlin. The atmosphere inside the Bird's Nest Stadium could have been cut with a knife. You see, Bolt had been conspicuously absent from the 2014 season because of injury. And the times that he'd set in 2015 were a long way off his best. Meanwhile, Gatlin, still tainted by his previous doping bans, had been posting world-leading times with frightening consistency. So Justin Gatlin was a bookmaker's odds-on favourite to take the title and in so doing bring the integrity of the sport into question. The stage was set for the ultimate showdown. And yet, somehow, despite their form and despite the predictions and despite the bookmaker's beliefs, everyone thought that the improbable could happen. You see, Justin Gatlin wasn't just facing any other sprinter. He was up against the one and the only Usain Bolt. You see, when Bolt lines up to start a race, you believe he's going to win. Why? Well, because he believes he's going to win. As Marcus Garvey, a 20th century Jamaican political activist, once aptly said, With confidence, you've won before you've started. With confidence, you've won before you've started. So what gives Bolt such supreme confidence? Well, I think it boils down to two things. He has confidence from the past, namely 14 previous Olympic and World Championship gold medal performances. And he has confidence in the present, evidence of his good form from times in training. And it's this confidence that gives Bolt the edge. It enables him to go out and perform on the biggest stage of all, time after time. And this year was no exception. He sneaked it on the line from Gatlin by just one hundredth of a second. Now, most of us would struggle to get out of our chairs in the time it takes Bolt to run 100 metres, But my desire is that through this passage in 1 John, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ would leave today with a confidence in our salvation that is even more unshakable than that of Mr. Bolt in the starting blocks. Now, as we've worked our way through 1 John together, we've been regularly reminded that one of John's main motivations in writing this letter is to give confidence to the church in their salvation, 
in the face of spurious claims of spiritual superiority from the departed. And as we approach the second half of chapter 4, we find John redoubling his efforts as he outlines a whole host of reasons for confidence. So with that in mind, if you'd open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you're using a church Bible, it's on page 1227. 1 John chapter 4 and starting at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is a son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he has first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Before we carry on, let's just pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for the great truths within this passage. We pray that as we come before you now, as we open your word, that your precious Holy Spirit would reveal the truth of it to our hearts that you might open our eyes to your glorious, all-surpassing love. 
and that we might be transfixed anew by you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So hopefully, as you've seen going through that passage, there's a great deal of truth in it and a great deal of encouragement to be had. But it also jumps about a bit. There's no clear logical thread that runs through if we take it verse by verse. And so what I want to look at this morning are two core reasons for confidence in our salvation. One past and one present. So the first reason we have for confidence in our salvation is God's unchanging love. So there's three things which John points out about God's love for us. The first thing is that it is central to his eternal nature. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And again, in the second half of verse 16, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So in verse 7, we're told that love is from God. And that is because, as it says in verses 8 and 16, God is love. You see, for all eternity, God has existed in loving trinity. And this is a point that Jesus alludes to in the high priestly prayer of John 17, when he says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. As Mike Reeves, a theologian, puts it in his book, The Good God, before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, God was a father loving his son. Love is not something that the father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be father. So love then is an intrinsic part of God's innermost being. It's not just one of his occasional attributes. Everything he does is characterized by love and saturated in love. If you think of God like a stick of rock, no matter where you break it, it would read love the whole way through. And since the scripture reassure us that God is the same yesterday and today and forever, we can have confidence that our God, who is love, will remain so for all eternity. So love is central to God's eternal nature. But if that's the case, then what does it look like? Well, look with me at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So here we see that it's through Jesus' sacrificial death for us that we have come to know and to understand the love of God. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's love. It says that in verse 10, this 
is love. This is the meaning and the substance of love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's so much truth in this verse alone, and we need to break it down. So firstly, love is not that we loved God. Love is not that we loved God. And praise God that the definition of love is not based on our feeble efforts. But rather, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were still in open and active rebellion against Christ's rule over our lives that he chose to lavish his love upon us. When we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, when we were totally unlovely enemies of God, he poured out his love for us. Love is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, once said that there is no greater theological statement in the whole Bible than in these two verses. Because in them we see that Jesus Christ, the holy, perfect, innocent Son of God, stood in our place and bore the judgment that we deserved for our sinful rebellion. Our Saviour endured the cruel shame the agony and the suffering of the cross as our substitutes in order that we might be reconciled to the Father. God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the sending of the Son for our salvation, we see more clearly than ever how generous and self-giving the love of the triune God is. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's love. But it's not just that. The cross is also the conduit through which we are welcome to join in that eternal Trinitarian love of God. If we go back to Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And so that leads us to the third point about God's love. It is the source and the motivation of our love for each other. So look at verse 7a again. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. This verse clearly teaches that love originates from God. This is such an important point for us to grasp. You see, the love that John wants us to show to others isn't something that we have to try and generate or stir up within ourselves. Rather, it is a reflection of the love that emanates from God through Christ to us. 
And John reinforces this in verse 19, when he says, we love because he first loved us. You know, it's only because God first showed love to us that we are even able to demonstrate true love to others. Our love comes from him. But God's love is more than just the source of our love for others. It's also the motivation. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As recipients of such inexpressible love, it's impossible not to be changed by it and to long to share that love which we have enjoyed with others. As John Stott puts it, no one who's been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. Love is an inevitable characteristic of those who know God and have truly experienced his love for them. So to summarise, the first core reason for confidence in our salvation is God's unchanging love for us. God is love. It's an essential part of his eternal nature, which was perfectly and completely expressed in Jesus' sacrificial death for us on the cross. And through Jesus' death, we have been reconciled to God and are once again able to share in his inexpressible love. And having experienced that love, we are being transformed such that it is our ever-increasing desire to be a conduit of God's great love to those around us. And so let's move on to the second reason that we have for confidence in our salvation. And that's a reason that is grounded in the present. You see, three times in this passage, John says, if this, then God lives in us. If this is true, then God lives in us. And together, these things provide assurance that God has taken up residence in our lives. Three proofs of God's residence, the first of which is belief in the apostolic gospel. So back in chapter two, we learned that the departed, those in the church who had broken away and claimed a superior knowledge of Christ, were saying that Jesus was in fact not the Christ. Now, as we've already seen, a gospel without Jesus isn't good news at all. Because without Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we would have been left to face the just consequences of our sin ourselves. And so in response to this false teaching, John twice reiterates the truth of the apostolic gospel. So look at verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him. And again in chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So the most fundamental assurance of our salvation is an understanding of the gospel that is grounded in biblical truth. 
And that actually brings great confidence. Because when we have a proper and correct understanding of the gospel, we know that our salvation doesn't rest on our own merit, but it rests on the perfect, finished work of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so, as Romans 10 puts it, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the first proof of God's resonance in our hearts is belief in the apostolic gospel that says Jesus is Lord and Saviour. The second proof of God's resonance in our lives is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. But how do we know that we've received the Holy Spirit? Well, let me give you an example. I think Rachel and I are probably not alone in saying that you can tell quite easily from the state of our flat when our parents are coming to stay. Suddenly, dusters emerge from dark corners of forgotten cleaning cupboards and the state of the skirting boards becomes a real and pressing concern. Now, in a similar but much less trivial way, God's presence in our hearts sets in motion a radical transformation, a transformation of our thoughts and our desires and our actions. On the one hand, this means that we'll no longer pursue the things that we once yearned after. So as Paul writes in Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the presence of the Spirit also means that we will begin to exhibit godly characteristics, which we often refer to as the fruit of the Spirit, as we allow God to take the reins of our life. And which of the nine fruits of the Spirit tops the list? Love. Which leads us on to the third proof of God's residence in our lives. Love for each other. Look again with me at verse 16, the second half. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So we started off by seeing how love is central to God's eternal nature. It's part of who he is. And as a result, anyone who has been born again in God will have love as a fundamental characteristic. And the opposite of that is also true, which is why John says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Claiming to know God when we don't love each other is like claiming to be best friends with someone when you don't speak their language. The two are incompatible. So as followers of Christ, we are to be characterised by love for each other. But not just any old love. The love that we are to show is the very love of the Father, made manifest in the Son and imparted to us through the Holy Spirit. This thought is echoed in Romans chapter 5, which says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. 
pause for a moment and consider how profound that statement is. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God has not just demonstrated love towards us. He has poured his own love into our hearts in order that we might love as he has loved. So then, what is our love to look like? Well, it's to have two key characteristics. Firstly, it's to be a sacrificial love. Because the love which inhabits us is the love of the Father who did not spare his only begotten Son, but gave him up for us all. There is no greater sacrifice than the sacrifice made by the Father when he sent the Son and he placed a punishment for our sin on him. No greater sacrifice than that of the Son as he willingly and obediently laid down his life for us. And this is the love that we are called to reflect in our daily lives. Love that is sacrificial at its core. But we're also called to have a love in us that is wholehearted. You see, in chapter 5, verse 3, it said, This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. You see, obeying God's command to love one another shouldn't be a chore. Instead, we should delight in sharing God's love generously with each other in every circumstance, however challenging that might be. And that eagerness should flow from the knowledge that we have all been and all are undeserved recipients of God's gracious love. But perhaps most incredibly of all, verse 12 tells us that as we express God's love to each other in this way, his love is made complete in us. You see, true love is made perfect in expression. And when we allow the love of God that has been poured into our hearts to transform our actions, God is glorified in and through us and his love is made complete. And love like that, love that is sacrificial and wholehearted, love that puts others before ourselves, is truly compelling. And when we think of love like that, it's no wonder that Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So, we've seen two reasons for confidence in our salvation. God's unchanging love and God's residence in our lives. And just as we finish, I want to touch on the impact that this confidence should have on our day-to-day living. We started by seeing that confidence that Usain Bolt has, which gives him an edge as he lines up to run his race. And in many ways, the same should be true of us. The confidence that we have in our salvation should set us apart. You You see, in verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love 
drives out fear. You see, a proper understanding of God's unshakable love poured out for us at the cross should free us from worrying about the security of salvation. And the knowledge of God's incomparable love poured into our hearts through the Spirit should enable us to love one another wholeheartedly and sacrificially. Because we know that this love, it doesn't depend on the strength or on the consistency of our affection, but on the boundless, unchanging love of the Father. So as we go into this week and as we approach a time of communion now, let's go rejoicing in our salvation, bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as we meditate on how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and marvel that this same love has been poured into our hearts, let's be in prayer that we might be able to reflect his love to others more clearly and more fully, to his praise and glory. Let's pray together. Our precious Heavenly Father, we want to come before you with thanks in our heart this morning. That while we were still rebels, while we were still far away from you, while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us. We thank you that Jesus went willingly to the cross and stood in our place, took the punishment that was due to us, and through his precious sacrifice, we have been reconciled to you. And our Father, I pray that this morning we might have a greater insight into your precious love. The love that led you to send your son and led him to give himself willingly on our behalf. And help us to understand what it means to have that love in our hearts. And to have the responsibility of reflecting that love and sharing it with each other and with the world around. Father, we pray that you would be doing your transforming work in our hearts. That you would be changing our affections and our desires so that they are ever increasingly focused and inclined towards you. And we pray that as we meditate on your love now, and as we look towards your sacrifice for us on Calvary's tree, that you would see the heartfelt thanks of our hearts and that that praise would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.